So you like bold red wine most of the time With notes of fig and raisin You like a cold brew and pitching horseshoes As the sun is fading You like football games and dishing out nicknames With Godfathers 1 and 2 But not so fast, we got them podcast We like that too we like that too. We like that too. We like that too. We like that too. Hey, Bon Vivants, welcome back to the We Like That Too podcast. I'm Brad Jones, and joining me here in the Bon Vivant International Media Center is the head Bon Vivant himself, Mr. Keith Inlow. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Well, here we are once again. Two two shows in a row down here in the uh, Bon Vivant International Media it's Center. A habit. And we're remote today. We are remote today. With well, we're somebody not remote. Very, our very, guest is remote. Our guest is remote. Yeah. Very special guy. I know. I can't wait for this one. He is an author. He is a journalist. He is a comedian. He's an actor. A pop culture. Pundit, I'm reading this off of his thing. So He's he wrote the bon this. Vivant shit. is what you're trying he to tell me. He is one of the biggest bon vivants I have ever met, and yes, I have been to a fabulous party at his apartment in New York City. It is oh. Mr. Frank DeCaro himself, Frankie. My beautiful apartment in New York where I no longer live. No, I'm in Los Angeles now for the last ten years. I knew. I, I, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. it's not so much that I can't believe I live in Los Angeles for ten years. It's that I can't believe I haven't been a New Yorker for ten years. That's what's the weird thing. That is very how how in the world does that happen? I mean, Kent said he hadn't seen you for a while. Well, I guess that's why you just don't go back to New York. I don't know. I, I we used to go like three, four, five times a year, and then when COVID hit, uh, we didn't go for two years, and we were like. That was okay. So it worked, so it worked out that we staying away actually does work out. But I'm really, I've got my theater tickets for the rest of the year. I have Christmas theater tickets. I have August theater tickets. I'm, I'm ready for my visit. So, uh, what are you going to go see, I, I, Frank? What are you going to go see? Cause theater is, oh, is one of our jams. Yeah. We love theater. Sweeney Todd in, in August. Ooh. And, uh, merrily we roll along in December. Is Josh Groban still going to be in Sweeney Todd? I hope so. Yeah. I'll be mad if it's like Linda Lavin or something, but I'll still, <laughs> um, but I'll go anyway. But cause she's, she's good too, I guess. Well, I've heard but, he does um, a great job with yeah. it. Yeah. I know. See, but I'm old enough. I saw Angela Lansbury and Len Carrier in the oh, original. Oh, so man. in high school, it was good. I, 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 it was the last time I was sexually active and I also went to, uh, uh, to uh, see Broadway shows with the original cast. So there you have it. It was an exciting time. Well. You know, one of our friend's daughter was auditioning for this show, and she's in high school, and I'm like, a high school is doing Sweeney Todd? You know, I'm, I'm not a prude or anything, but it's like, it's a little dark for a That's, high school uh, yeah. musical, but I yeah. love it. You know, too, it's a too, great one. Too soon for pie? Yeah. <laughs> I- <laughs> <laughs> What's on the cafeteria menu today? Me? Yeah, it's just just too well is all I can say because there is that scene where he goes a fingernail and it's like oops, yes, you got to be careful. So be careful what you're eating, kids. So. Oh gosh. <laughs> well, what's it been like? I mean, what was the transition from New York to L.A. like? I know it's been a few years, but you know what kind of adjustment did you have to make? I, 
realized what a giant suburban streak I have. And so I, after 25 years of living in New York City, I knew I needed a change. And really, it came down to two things. It was, if our rent goes to what we think it's going to go to, and this is 10 years ago, and we looked at each other, and we said, if it goes to $3,500 a month, for this lousy one bedroom where they give us no heat in the winter, what what are we going to do? Let's go to California where instead of it smelling like homeless underpants, it smells like <laughs> night-blooming jasmine. Let's go there. <laughs> so we decided uh, that, you know, the moment the, the notice came uh, and it said, your new rent will be $3,500 a month. We're like, well, we're not doing that. And, uh, and also, it was, so that was part of it. And also... If I, I thought if I came out to L.A. and I got one audition, that would be a 100% improvement on what was going on for me in New York. Yeah. So so I did. So I came out and I started doing the radio show that I was doing, and I did it from here for a few years. And then uh, and then that whole channel, This when you're going to go, this is the way to go. They got rid of the whole channel. I, st- I not only stank up my show, I destroyed the whole channel. <laughs> So it was not weird. I wasn't wasn't my fault, but no. But they decided to get rid of the whole channel, and so I was like, "Well, that's that." You were replaced. So, uh, you were replaced with Margaritaville. The exactly. The but wow. here I was like, "Yeah, I was on serious." But here's the thing: how upset can you be when the first day of your unemployment, you're in the back of a limo in a tuxedo at 11 a.m. going to the Grammys with a nominee? So I, that was my experience. So I couldn't really be that upset. I was on my way with Lisa Lampanelli. The comedian who I was working with, yeah, um, doing stand up with her. I was opening for her, and uh, and so I ended up going to uh, the Grammys with her on the first day of unemployment. So it, I'm blessed, is what I'm saying. It's like you can't be too upset that things went the way they did when uh, when that's your first day off. Well, it so, has to be. It had to be oh, a well. little little dramatic, Frank, because you grew up in in New York. You grew up in New Jersey, right? A little bit, yeah. But see, but I still have our house there. I still have my childhood at home. Oh, okay. And my my wife, as I say, even though I have a husband, I have my wife, quote unquote, lives there. And so I get a report, and she takes care of the place nicely. And then when we go back, we see her, and uh, and so it's worked out. It's it's all worked out nicely, I have to say. So I'm I'm very lucky to be bi coastal after all these years. So I'm trying to be chronological. Sometimes that works. Sometimes it it doesn't. But my you- brain is. Do you see that movie Elvis? That's what my brain is like. It's like, oh look, it's it's a Ferris wheel. No, it's a record. That's me. So don't worry, but go wherever you want. I, I don't know what's going. On. I just kind of figured that's the way this was going to go anyway. But I, I did want to talk a little bit because you and my brother got to be friends when you were doing movie reviews on the Daily Show, and I think both of you were like two of the first ones that they hired. Um, yes, you, you your were right brother. Your brother and another writer, Mr. Guy Nicolucci. So it was Kent Jones and Guy Nicolucci and me. And they're the reason to blame for my entire, I could have been a nice journalist with a pension at this point, but no, I had to be a performer. And so I went and, uh, and it's all, they unleashed me on television. They encouraged me to be to out Rex Reed, Rex Reed, to be the gayest oh, person on television. <laughs> and for now, a long there's time, a, there's an iconic I reference. was. And I have to tell you, for two straight guys, we all went to see different screenings 
of this awful horror movie called Anaconda. We went to three different theaters around Manhattan, and we all came in, and the first thing in each notebook was, Anaconda? I knew a drag queen once named Anaconda. So that was the first thing we'd each written. So we really did. Uh, we, we were like the Gay Straight Alliance, and, uh, oh, and we, we did an amazing thing. But your brother is to blame is, is, for, for uh, many of the naughty things uh, I said, uh, either that he came up with them or encouraged us to come up with them, and I owe him the a debt for the rest of my life. The one I always think of, I think this is his fault. We did I Am Spartacus when we saw Spartacus. Uh, uh, when we saw, well, excuse me, uh, whatever that that sword and sandals movie that we all went crazy. I don't remember. Yeah. Gladiator. Gladiator. That was, we did jokes like, he went, you know, he was uh, he went from Gladiator to Sorry He Didn't. You know, we were doing jokes like that. It was horrible, horrible, dirty, dirty things that we were getting away with. So. Bobby Vaughn, you can find that on YouTube, uh, Frank's uh, review of Gladiator. Uh, it is hilarious. Oh, just oh my dirty. gosh. Dirty is the word you're looking for. They're just dirty. The who one, appro- who I'm sorry, go ahead. Who approached you for The Daily Show then? How did, how did that come about? Guy Nicolucci was my editor at Spy. For, and he was the editor-in-chief, that's, and he had me writing right. these things that couldn't have been gay. Okay, It was called To New York, was the name of this two-page column I had. Before the first one even hit the stands, he was out on his ear, and I thought, that is the best job I had for two minutes. It was, little did I know. And it was really funny, and the new editor came in and said, why are we even writing about Charles Nelson Riley?" And I just was like, <laughs> I can't explain this to you. And I have to go now. So it, that was the end of that. So it only lasted two issues. But then he said, I'm doing this thing. There's this new show called The Daily Show, and you should come on and promote your book. I had a new, I had a memoir because, of course, when you're 33, you should have a memoir. I had a memoir, and it was about growing up gay in New Jersey. And it was called A Boy Named Phyllis. And it's actually, you can get it on Audible. I, I finally read it after all these years. There's a, a, a audiobook version of A Boy Named Phyllis. And anyway, so I went on and promoted this book with Craig Kilborn, who was the host, the first host of The Daily Show. Yeah. And the boys said, particularly your brother, said to me, talk about movies while you're on. And so we worked up a little bit about how gay men were going broke because every icon, every gay icon had a movie that year. It was like Madonna was in Evita and this one was that. And so we were naming all the, you know, Barbara Streisand was in something. And, uh, and so I did a little shtick about that. And then suddenly, uh, I started doing a, a Siskel and Ebert routine with Liz Winstead, who co-created the show. Right. And we did a, it was sort of, uh, she kind of led the way in those, when we did it together and I was kind of the, the gay guy who would pipe up and we were kind of Carrie Bradshaw and, and Stanford Blatch before they existed. <laughs> and, uh, and so we did it. And then when Liz left the show, they didn't want me to do it alone. And thank heaven, the woman that they cast was not, she was very beautiful, but not funny. And so that worked to my advantage. So we said, let's try it. Just me. And then it really kind of took off and became this filthy, filthy, fun, gay thing. But now it's so gay and so dirty. They don't even put it in, you know, early gay images on television. Nothing. Okay. I'm, I've been swept under the rug. I am they're like, don't put him in it. Every October 1st, Glad calls and says, please go back in the closet. They did every year yeah, coming yeah. out day. They, they tell me, get in there. And so that's that. They don't really do that but because um, they don't know I exist. But, um, <laughs> well, Frank, you know, we, we've talked about so. that before, that how comedy has been affected by certain things in, in the culture that what you used to be able to 
poke fun at and laugh at are now off limits. And, uh, you know, it's challenging for comedians, I think, these days. You just have to take your lumps if they don't like it. You know, I mean, yeah. it's like, it's not that you can't say it. You could say it. You just have well, to, you yeah, know. I guess, just, I guess that's the thing. You know. what, what are the consequences if you do it? And uh, yeah, yeah, are you willing to thing. suffer those? And so uh, I, I, I actually would have been think canceled that, yeah, the, once a week. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah. No, I was going to say, the joke I always think of was we were doing a lightning round of movie reviews and we did, next up, What Women Want. Who cares? Next. <laughs> I mean, that was the entire review of what women want. Who cares? And you couldn't do that now. I mean, it's it's hilarious, but you couldn't. You know, I still would, but that's why I'm not on any form of media. But I say things like that in my own house, you know, to no no one. Yeah. What got you into the idea of entertainment journalism? And that's what I'm going to call it because you have done so many things on the entertainment front. I mean, there's not an entertainment journalism major in college. How do you how do you get down that road? How do you start down that road? Um, I always wanted to be either a theater critic or a movie reviewer or something writing about the arts. I okay. mean, I really wanted to be a performer, but I didn't have the nerve or honestly or the talent probably to take it as seriously as as I have my writing. But um I'm the guy in high school and says ambition. It's a journalist. You know, I mean, I've, I've always wanted to do it. Um, I just grew up reading, you know, the arts and leisure section of the times and yeah. TV guide and every, you know, people magazine. And, you know, you got to keep up when there's a Laverne and Shirley cover of people magazine, you got to read every word. You know, I was, <laughs> I was very, very excited in those days when that would happen. But, um, I just kind of always wanted to do that because I think that the arts are, uh, would separate us from the animals. You know, I think that art makes us better. And that's when people say, oh, arts education isn't that important. It's like, oh my God, it's the most important thing. It gives you hope. It lets you know that the world could be a beautiful place and that they're, hey, you know, it's the most important thing. So so growing up out there, though, that first time that you had a, a piece of yours submitted in the uh, New York Times uh, Arts and Leisure, that had to have been a thrill. It just had to have been, I would think. You remember what you you remember what that piece was about, Frank? You, I was. It was 1999. I had been writing for 15 years at that point uh, for any number of newspapers and magazines, and I finally got a story on my beloved Dame Edna, who just passed away, yeah. one of the greatest performers ever. And I had a huge story on Barry Humphreys, her creator, or or perhaps not her creator. She may have been the real thing, and he might have been the fake. We don't know. She, she always said, him. <laughs> Yes. She did have, there was actually some, I don't know, a, a comment from her after he died. There was a piece that ran in one of the Australian newspapers by her, and uh, and she so she had placed that uh, <laughs> to make sure that she got the last word. But no, so I did this piece on Dame Edna, and it's I should have just hung up my hat after that, because it got a, a Hirschfeld drawing. It was as big as life. It was a whole page practically in the new york times and um yeah that was the most exciting thing it, re- it remains the the high point of of uh things i've done I, oh I my really... god to get a hirschfield oh yeah. my i would have that's a, that's almost as good as my brother being on the mizzou alumni uh magazine did you get a chance to see that i did i saw that he i saw <laughs> one of the pieces he wrote 
No, I, it's Could crazy. you believe that shit? I called him. I said, I didn't know you were getting the cover. He goes, well, I wasn't sure I was getting it either, but he was, he, he getting a Hirschfeld is pretty good too, but, um, my yeah, God, no it doubt. was so funny. It was, he was hilarious. Well, gentlemen, I'd like to continue this, but I'm getting parched. Oh, I don't dear. know about you. Oh dear. Yeah, Keith, Frank, Keith, it's Keith, my, it's yes. my, I'm the hall monitor. It's my job to keep us on track. And we've got these two glasses sitting here and we haven't touched them or talked about them, but we need to do that. So Brad, this is your concoction. I'm going to let you tell Bon Vivants what we're drinking today. Well, uh, in honor of Mr. DeCaro himself, yes, who thank said you for the suggestion that, uh, that we would uh, do a Manhattan and you and our bourbon we guys. We are bourbon and rye guys. So thank and, you, Frank. We are right in line with you. So this is a, this is a Manhattan that uh, is made, I think, pretty much the traditional way. You've got to, uh, you've got to have a little sweet vermouth and mm-hmm. some bitters. And mm-hmm. I put a little orange bitters in mine. Yes. And, uh, they usually come with a couple of cherries mm-hmm. and, uh, you shake it. Shake it, shake it, shake it. All the the flavors kind of uh, they kind of meld. They in do there. kind of marry. It's um, it's ve- this is very nice. And Frank, you're joining us on the West Coast. Oh yeah. Uh, it's what time is it? You know, it's after five here, so it's okay. Yeah, I'm good. It's five o'clock so, uh, somewhere, as Jimmy Buffett yeah. would say. Yep. Um, Frank, what, how do you make your Manhattans? What do you do special okay. to them that you like them? I have to tell you what happened because. I used to think you, that the, you know, as long as you had, uh, you know, some bourbon and some vermouth and any kind of bitters and any kind of maraschino cherry, it's fine. Well, I made the mistake. I, when I was living in New York, one of the places I used to love to get a Manhattan was the Monkey Bar. And it's now gone. And it was a wonderful, it really was like a watering hole, yeah. as they would say. And it was a chic place, but kind of intimate and had great monkeys painted on the walls and carvings yeah, yeah. and things. And, um, it was particularly good if you were there on somebody else's dime. Well, anywhere is good if you're there on somebody else's dime for your drinking. Especially but, in New York. Here. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I like yeah. to pay triple uh, here for a couple of weeks before I go out there, and then the shock isn't quite as bad. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> I remember the first time somebody ordered uh, – actually, it was it was Guy Nicolucci who did this. And, and he said, I'll get this. And, uh, and they ordered, we ordered three martinis and the guy said $60 on my own. And this is like, you know, 30 years ago, whenever it went, it was insane. And I remember like sort of falling out of my tree. Now you're just like, <laughs> oh yeah, whatever. It's just don't even look at it. You'll, you'll just go into shock. But anyway, so I'm at the monkey bar and, uh, and I ordered a Manhattan and I tasted it and I said, oh my God, this is so much better than, than when I do it. Why? Why? And he said, it's the verm, and the guy, the Italian bartender said, it's the vermouth. And I said, Oh, I didn't think the vermouth mattered. And he said, everything matters. And he yelled at me in Italian accent, you know. And I found out that day that, yes, the vermouth matters. So now I make them. I do Maker's Mark uh, bourbon. I do Antica Formula Carpano vermouth, which is the greatest vermouth there is. Okay. It's fantastic. Antica Formula Carpano. And then a little bit of bitters. And then you need a Luxardo Maraschino cherry. You right. mortgage the house and you buy ridiculously expensive yep. Maraschino cherries. But there's and, a difference. Uh, and, they're and so good. You're right. Yeah, they're really good. But honestly, it's the vermouth because, you know, that's, that's the thing. And the Maker's Mark, I, I just, I like that. It has wax on the top of, you know, I just like Maker's yes. Mark. I think it's, it's delicious. But that vermouth, but he yelled at me. The guy, it really was like, I was, he was like, Manhattan Nazi instead of soup Nazi. I mean, he, he, you know, I thought it was going to be, you know, no Manhattan for you. I was like, I'm fine, <laughs> with, you know, but it, it ended up being okay. And, and I learned a thing. And so now I have, uh, I use antique formula. 
I wonder, if, I, I wonder if New, New Yorkers are, are a little bit more, uh, uh, how, how do you say, well, there's that, but, but, you know, they, they, they take those, uh, Manhattans, given that's their name, yeah, you know, yeah. very, a little more seriously than maybe we do here in the Midwest. I don't know. Well, or maybe know. Well, it was I, just that, an Italian yeah. guy that didn't like you. I don't know. That could be too. It could be. He saw that I was a Paisano as well, and, and, uh, he maybe self loathed. I don't yeah. know. I do have to agree but with him. I think right. Everything does matter. I agree with him. And, uh, you did, did you know, Frank, that I am a Maker's Mark ambassador? What does that mean? Do well, get, it's, do a, they... it's a highly selective process. What you do is you go online and you go to Maker's Mark's website and you say, I want to be an ambassador. <laughs> and they sign and you you're up. one. <laughs> the neat thing is you get a Christmas gift every Christmas from them. It's really cool. And you I can get, I want yeah, that now. Well, I've been thinking enough it, of their And you can get your name product. on a barrel. And when we did our trip to bourbon country, my barrel was matured and we got to dip bottles out of my barrel and they have my name on the label and it's really cool he got to dip a bottle he got to, that <laughs> was, was the cool say. part i was yes i got to uh be the videographer yeah. watching keith Enlow dip his uh bottle in the Careful. wax <laughs> i can call it a lot of things a bottle dipper is one of them i'll tell you he was a bottle dipper yes yeah uh, yes i've been called things that are that many syllables but how, never a bottle dipper how's that so for a euphemism dip your bottle yes. in the wax here's something here is something that a bon vivant like you would not expect at a Maker's Mark distillery. They have a collection down there of Chihuly glass uh, along That's a one thing. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, it was it's a great tour. It's a great tour. Yeah, you it get a golden a ticket tour. and everything, so I highly recommend it. Yep. <clears throat> we need no. to do I it again. I thought you were going to say here's what you wouldn't believe. They have a collection of um, precious moments figurines or something. I was like, no way! <laughs> you do know but, Missouri is the home of precious moments though, right? There is I, such I, a thing. Yeah. There is. I do. There. I hated them for the longest time, but then they did Batman and Catwoman. I kind of wanted them, but then I didn't get them. But I kind of still want them. Hey, before oh I forget, gosh. do, you, do yeah. you still have your uh, cookie jars? I have a lot of cookie jars, but really, but they're kind of mostly put away. The thing that's kind of taken over was they've started making toys that go with Batman '66, the Batman version I grew up with with Adam West and Burt Ward, oh. and so I buy the. Yeah, so there's a lot of new toys that go along with that. And I just, I just got the library with the bat poles and it's too, I mean, they're little, you know, it's not like I have to move out to install them. I mean, but it's getting, you know, but, uh, and I got a King Tut figure, which is pretty great. And nice. Batman with his pink cowl from the Mad Hatter episode with the radioactive cowl. So he has a, it's Batman with a bright pink cowl. I think it's Batman for Pride Month is really what it is, but it's a radioactive <laughs> cowl. Um, that from an episode of the show. Yeah, so I have a lot of those, and then I have to sneak them in because I really have to buy one of those uh, 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 doormats that say, uh, delivery man, please hide from husband. You know, that's what I need because yeah. I get, you yeah. know, it's, I, it's it's problematic. Let me, let me add, do you miss doing movie reviews? Or no. do you think, <laughs> no, or do you, is there anything out there that you just have never really felt compelled to want to talk about? Once in a while, you'll go see – well, mostly you watch it on TV now because I'm not going to go sit with other people. Um, but you'll watch something and think, oh, we could have had a field day with this. Yeah. you know. Um, but not that often. It's weird. you know. For someone who likes nostalgia as much as I do, I never think about going back really and redoing something I did. You know, It's sort of like, well, I did that already. You know, it's people are like, when are you going to do another radio show? It's like, I already did that. You know, it's, it's sort of like, 
you know, it's like getting married while you're married. You know, it's like, all right, I'm done. You know, it's it's like I did that thing. Um, You know, so so I don't really. Yeah, you've done so much different stuff, though, Frank. One thing I did want to get some deep dive on is the Dead Celebrity Cookbook. I'm an amateur chef myself, and so I'm really curious, where'd you come up with the concept? And then what kind of research and how'd you put it together? And you've got two of them, right? I have two of them. Yeah, I did a Christmas one, but nobody saw the Christmas one. It was like, I've never seen the Christmas one in his store, ever. Okay. It was sort of like, oh, good job getting that book out there, guys. I never saw it in the store. So it does exist, and you can order it online, but I never saw it in the store. But it was, uh, the Dead Celebrity Cookbook came, there are two reasons for it. One was to justify my collecting. I used to go to the flea market uh, in New York City every weekend. And, and there used to be three lots, and they were big lots back when there was still real estate that could be a vacant lot. And it was in like around 26th Street. And I would buy anything that had a celebrity recipe in it. So it might be a, a vintage copy of, you know, the Beverly Hills Women's Club presents, you know, stars, you know, at brunch or something. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so I would buy all these old magazine articles, you know, whatever they had, I would buy. And so you kind of think, well, all right, I have got all this crap now. Well, how am I going to justify it? And I thought, what if I take the recipes and redo them because you can't, you can't copyright a list of ingredients. So if they, if, if they, you know, if it says two cups of sugar, it's fine. But if you, you, so you can steal that, but you can't steal. If it says take one big heap and help enough, you can't steal that. That's somebody else's words, but ingredients you can steal. So I rewrote all these recipes, but mostly it was an excuse to remind people who, these performers of yesteryear were because I, I was like, if I have one more intern who does not know what I'm talking about. So that was where it came from. Um, and I also like the dead celebrity cookbook as the name. And that became from uh, when I went to Northwestern, somebody threw a dead celebrity party and you had to go dressed as your favorite dead celebrity. Yeah. And I went as Yule Gibbons, who was selling great stuff. And he, Many parts are edible. Yes, Many parts that's it. Are edible. Many parts are fine for your edible. I went as him. And, um, and so that was fun. I don't, he was either a naturist or a naturalist. I don't remember which, one is a nudie and he's not that. <laughs> yeah. So it's whichever it means he likes the outdoors with clothes. Yes. So naturist or naturalist, it's one of those. And, uh, so I went, I went as him, but it was fun and it was very typical of my sense of humor. Like there was a guy dressed as, uh, Judy Garland who had a pill bottle that said take until dead. And, uh, you know, it was that kind of thing. It was, it was in bad taste. There was oh, yeah. someone came as Sharon Tate, you know, murdered. Ouch, it was, yeah. Oh, you know, I mean, it was, yeah. yeah, it was a little much. She had a baby strapped to her leg. It was oh. bad. Yeah. It was, oh, man. She was a punk, oh. the punk, she was a punk rock chick, you know, so she pushed the envelope yeah. a little more than yeah. the rest of us. It's a little different than Yul Gibbons. So, uh, but, well, uh, yeah, I just was a breakfast cereal guy. When was the second dead celebrity cookbook published? God, it was a few years after. The first one, I don't remember it. Well, the, reason I, I, uh, you know, the reason I ask is, there, you know, if it's been well, let's go with that. we've got a lot of new dead celebrities that you could do another edition. you got yeah. a whole bunch you of new a, material yeah. there, Frank. 12 years, years worth, of, 12 new years worth celebrities. of worth of deadness, yes. True, I could, I could definitely, oh, it was bad when I was writing it. Betty White was the only uh, living <laughs> golden girl. And my husband is like Mr. Golden Girls. He wrote the Golden Girls book, the first one, and, and, and kind of is the reason ever, you know, he's helped this whole Golden Girls renaissance 
along with his work. But he, um, I told him, I said, you know, if Betty goes, I said, I could, I have chicken wings Pacifica. It could be delicious in there, you know. And he said, don't you even joke about that? He was really mad. So, but then it's, you know, she only went now. This is, the book has been now forever, you know, and good for her. So she, she well outlasted the dead celebrity. Yes, yeah, she did. Yes, yeah, she, she did. did. So, and God loved her for that. She had a good run. Yep. Yeah. She sure did. She sure did. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you because it it had to have been an absolute potpourri of uh, of of interesting stories. You hosted the Oscars five times for Comedy Central. Well, we 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 used to do these preview specials, right? And they would really be an excuse to look at all these movies, but it was more kind of, uh, they were so gay. I mean, I don't really know any other way to put it. They re- one, the last one was set in a bathhouse, for God's sake. It was like I was, we had someone handing out towels. It was really dirty. Um, but it, but it was really fun. But, but, um, the best one was the, the, the big O true West Hollywood story. And it was a spoof of the E true Hollywood story. And B Arthur was in it herself. Real B Arthur was in it. And, um, and Rex Reed was in it as well. The critic Rex Reed, who was in Myra, an actor in Myra Breckenridge. Right. And, yeah. and so now Rex thought the script we'd written was not funny, but B. Arthur looked at us and said, Oh, this is hilarious. <laughs> and so we all were like, lot of that. B. Arthur thinks it's funny. So, and then she added so much. When you hear someone who's that good at comedy read your line, you kind of plots because it's just like, how did you find that much funny? in those dopey words we wrote because she, you know, but to have her say, Oh, this is pretty funny was a huge deal. So who cared if Rex Reed didn't like it? You know, B. Arthur, Maud liked it. Darby Bornack liked it. Maud liked it. Maud liked it. So, So that was way more important to us. But, uh, but yeah, those, those shows were really, really fun. But honestly, I, I don't know if we got away with stuff because not a lot of people were watching them or, if it was because it was just a different time or I don't know, you know, um, it, it, we really did stuff that, you know, I, there was one that was a spoof of Castaway. Remember that Tom Hanks oh, movie? Oh yeah, where, absolutely. So with the ball, he, Wilson was his companion. It was the, the yes, ball, yes. the soccer ball. Well, we had a, a ball, but it was in, it, it was a soccer ball with a wig on him. It was Flip Wilson. <laughs> so that was our, our stick. And I, uh, I washed up on an island, and then there was a huge uh, delivery from the international mail catalog. So I had a different caftan in every scene. So I had, oh and God. I just, you know, and I, I, there was one scene where I lit a cigarette with a with a lighter and said, "Look, Wilson, I made fire," and then puffed away. You know, it was so fruity. I look at those photos of me with the cast, and it's like me and Colbert and Carell and Ed Helms, uh, and you know, and and Fancy walls and, you know, and, and, Mo, hitters, yeah. you know, and yeah. Mo Rocca, you know, and Lewis Black. And it's, it's, you know, I just, it's, it's crazy, you know, um, it's, I'm the, who the hell is that, you know, guy, but, um, but at least I knew to sit next to John. So you couldn't just cut me out of the picture. <laughs> um, well, Frank, where can Bon Vivants access your stuff now? What are you doing? Where, you know, where can they find you? Oh, they everything's can, online all my and stuff, stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, I would go to my Instagram is pretty funny. That's kind of okay. my creative outlet between books. I post a lot, not a lot, not so much. You'll get annoyed, but enough that you'll be amused. And it's generally uh, naughty. And, oh, I ran into one of the, I'm a big fan of this show ghosts 
on CBS. Love it. And the woman who plays the, the, the Gilded Age lady, Hetty, yes, yes. I saw her, Rebecca Wisaki, and I said, Rebecca, I said, you are a dirty birdie on your show. You're having an affair with the, the Wall Street guy. And she yeah. said, you're calling me a dirty birdie. I follow you on Instagram. You're the dirty birdie. And so I was <laughs> laughing and I was like, yeah, I am a dirty birdie on Instagram. So, but it's just, I just like to take things that aren't dirty and make them dirty and things that are dirty and make them <laughs> childish, dirtier, you know? Dirtier. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like to take, like, I'll find, you'll, you'll I'll follow somebody who writes like a sex column and I, I'm so, prudish at this, sex negative and prudish at this point. I, I'll see like a filthy headline, you know, and then, uh, you know, I fisted someone at a, at a brunch, you know, and I'll go, and then I'll take a picture of like Mother Dexter from Phyllis and put a, put her picture with it, you know, I mean, that kind of thing. It's like, take a 90-year-old woman who looks like a raisin and put a filthy headline with it, you know, that that's my kind of thing. Well, we will post all of your social media links and things on our website. and uh, Follow wanna... at Frank DeCaro's show because even though my husband's the only person who hears it now, I'm still doing the show every morning. You know, okay. it's, it, my radio show goes on. It's just not broadcast anywhere. It's, a, uh, it, and it, and it stops and starts a little more and, and there are no sponsors, but it's very, but it's very similar <laughs> to, to the show. You should, contact, you should the, contact your local library, Frank. Honestly, yeah, you know, so. or maybe there's that. I'll, I'll have to see if they'll let me. Tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about the radio show. What's kind of the format? Uh, tell the Bon Vivants out there um, what you know. For do you twelve have? years, I was on Sirius XM, and we would we would just talk about nonsense, and then we'd do a really smart interview with someone, and then we would go back to talking about lunacy. You know, I mean, it's like we would. We, I, I sort of prided on myself on being a really good interviewer, and. And, and, uh, particularly if it was like a classic star, you know, that was my favorite. And we had, we had B. Arthur on and she talked dirty. And we had Carol Cook, who was a, a protege of Lucy and she talked really dirty. She was in her nineties. And, uh, so I liked, I basically liked having old people on who would talk, uh, naughtiness <laughs> with me. It was a Ernest Borgnine talked. I said, I said, Ernest, I said, a live microphone caught you saying, that masturbation is what keeps you young. And he said, it does, you know? And so it was like, you know, those kinds of things, you know? So that's my kind of show. You know, I, I want young and hip and fashionable and, and, you know, gorgeous. And then someone old and naughty and, you know, I like it all. You know, Donna, I always admire Donatella Versace, the designer of, of the Versace collection. Somebody said to her, she moved into a new apartment and somebody said, did anyone interesting ever live in your apartment? And she said, I think everybody's interesting. And then they said, they asked her um, about her, her taste and she said, I like what I always liked. I just like more of it now. And it's like, I was like, bitch, I'm with you. That's the way I, I like what I've always liked. I just like more stuff. That's, you know, and I think that's a much better way to be than being pretentious or awful or, you know, there's so many people where they call it discerning, but really what they are is negative. You know, they're just crabby about everything. It's like people hate every Broadway show. What do you want that Broadway show, show to do for you? Do you, you know, do, does it need to give you a handy? It's like, what do you want it to do? It's like, it's got to fill two hours and then you go to dinner. That's all it has to do. That's you right. know, it's like, <laughs> try to find out. a cab. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Like, like everything is basically, <laughs> that's my advice. Like, ever, have fun everywhere. Go, you know. There is something to be said about older people losing their filter. I've, I've seen some recent, uh, 
tape of oh, yeah. Betty Davis doing when she's really elderly doing some tonight shows with Johnny Carson. I mean, she has no filter at all. She's she's talking about people she's worked with and it is hilarious. She just you know, lets exactly loose. the clip. The Faye Dunaway clip. Yes, will the Faye curl Dunaway clip. Hair. Yeah. Yeah, it is, but it's hilarious. I was on the floor. Yeah, it's yeah, so it's funny. And, and meanwhile, she's making Richard Pryor laugh. That's what. Yeah, that's yeah. when you know you're funny. If you're making Richard <laughs> yeah. Pryor double over in his yeah. chair, then yeah. you know you're on to something. That's right. That's you know? right. Although people, that, in my experience, people who are as funny as Richard Pryor are very generous with their laughter. You yeah. know? Yeah. It's people who are that. T- Robin Williams, you could make Robin Williams laugh in an interview. Yeah, you know, it's well, like Johnny Carson was a great laugher. I mean, he, yeah, he loved yeah. to be. You could make, yeah, you make a Johnny laugh. laugh. It was you. You had it. You killed. You had a good night. Yeah, yeah. Hey, so, I want to ask you about. You're sitting on the yes, I want to ask you about a couple things. First of all, I think drag combing through the big wigs of show business is one of the great titles of any book that I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> I'll even open that one. Um, tell, tell <laughs> Thank us, you. It's a great title. Tell me a little bit about the uh, the, the research and, and everything that went into that because that is a that book has gotten to be sort of iconic, especially in the uh, in the drag world. Yeah, they do. The girls like it. I have to say, it's it's pretty nice, and they like my Bob Mackie book too. I did a Bob Mackie book in '98, yeah, way back when, and that's pretty popular. Secret, it's out of print, but the. You'd be every every costume designer has one on there uh, in in on Broadway as a copy. Um, but anyway, I was the the drag book. The, an editor from Rizzoli came to me and said, "Somebody needs to do a book on drag, and I think it's you." And I thought, "Why? I don't do drag." And every time I the one the few times I've done it, I look like one of the women from the Far Side. You know, I mean, it's it's terrifying. <laughs> You know, I look like Edith Prickley from SCTV. I just never, it's not pretty, you know, and, but I started to think about it and I realized that I may not be a drag queen, but I've been drag hag number one for decades. And so I thought, yeah, I am the right person to write this. And, uh, and I took on the, the job and, and then I took an extra year to do it, even though <laughs> I was like, oh, that deadline's not going to happen. So, but it ended up working out, uh, well. And so I, I, uh, I interviewed all these amazing drag performers. Um, and I looked at it really with the kitchen sink approach. I think that you have to look at everybody from Milton Burl to RuPaul and beyond. You know, I, I think that, um, a man in a dress or a woman in a tuxedo or whatever is, is, um, interesting if they're on a stage or in a movie. And, and what does it say about our culture and, and our gen, our ideas about gender and, uh, and it, and so I did this book. The thing that was interesting was I, I had not only had I seen Milton Berle in a dress in person and Flip Wilson in person and Charles Pierce and follow the careers of Charles Bush and years of going to Wigstock in New York City when, when that, you know, when RuPaul was still a brunette. And Lady Bunny could see her feet, and they, you know, and and uh, and I could see mine. Uh, but uh, you know, it was uh, you know, I, I was witnessing all of this, so it seemed like, yeah, this is the right thing for me to 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 write about. So it was fun, and and I also I had all of these. Either I had people in my uh, in my ro- you know my my contacts list, my Rolodex. I was going to say in my contacts list, or I knew how to find the person uh, one or two phone calls away. So I kind of knew a lot of the, the big wigs of show business uh, 
who had done drag. So that was, uh, it was really fun. Disco is, but my new book on disco is a little bit different because I've never written music cover. Well, you have very few times I've written music stories. So, uh, I don't have all those people, you know, in my call, on my call list. And so I had to find them or find friends of friends, but it's come together pretty nicely as well. But the drag book was a little bit easier in, in that I knew so many of these people. What's the, uh, what's the timing on the disco book? Uh, it's, it's overdue the way the drag book was overdue, but I'm, <laughs> I'm coming on, the, I'm in the home stretch. I'm almost done and it'll come out next year. And, uh, they come to my house and beat the crap out of me if it's not completely done by July. But, um, uh, it, it's going to be out sometime next year because next year is the 50, it's called disco at 50. And it's the 50th anniversary of the, as Encyclopedia Britannica calls it, the first disco quad disco song, which was, uh, Never Can Say Goodbye, uh, by Gloria Gaynor. Okay, and it yeah. was the first time that an album side had been turned into a disco suite. And it was mixed by a producer named Tom Moulton. And, uh, and so there was that. So I wonder, um, I wonder so what the, light, the, the lightning bolt moment was when you, when they, what they considered to be the, the first disco song. So that would have been what, 77, 70, it was 74. 74. No, it was, it was earlier than that. 74. Oh, okay. yeah. yeah. But honestly, the groundwork had been laid beginning in about 1970. There was a, a disco open called the loft. And it was, uh, in a private loft and they picked at the door who could come in. It was invitation only. And, uh, it was in a loft in Soho or might have been NoHo first and then Soho. Um, but it, uh, it was by a DJ named David Mancuso. So he was, it was his own warehouse space that he was living in. And there was nothing in Soho at the time. Um, and so people would go and, and it was that mix that Studio 54 got known for of, uh, of rich people and, and starving artists and, you know, models and, and, uh, fabulous people no one had ever heard of. And, you know, just that uptown and downtown mix. And, uh, you know, it was like, you just had to be fabulous to get in. You didn't necessarily have to be rich or famous. Um, so, uh, it was, it was that idea was, uh, you know, mixing gay and straight and, black and white and uh, and brown and uh, you know it was it was kind of a big deal because people were not used to that so and it was a way for uh, somebody said to me they said you do know it was the first time the most straight people saw gay people having fun and i was like oh yeah i guess there's that because usually they're behind them doing their hair you know at that point <laughs> in 1970 you know they're not seeing them in their natural habitat yeah so um frank do books like these ever get adapted into documentary films I mean, it's almost like these are printed documentaries. I could see drag. I could see, um, the Mackie book getting, you know, getting adapted into a, a documentary type effort. We Certainly are pitching, disco. Call yeah, Ken Burns. We are pitching the drag book, uh, as a basis for a, yeah. uh, docuseries. And, uh, we've gotten a little way with it. And I'm just, you know, it's just everything takes forever. Sure. But, uh, sure. Hopefully, uh, it'll happen. We're working with, um, the production company that right now has that show on the game show show that's on ABC yeah, and they yeah. did the history of the sitcom and the story of late right. night. Yeah. They're quite wonderful yeah. and uh, they're called cream productions. So we're working with them trying to get it out there and hopefully someone will nibble. Mm -hmm. But you know, even, even now, even in 2023, 
it's still annoying that gay is still niche and they still see drag as gay even though every every straight actor worth his salt has put a dress of a certain yeah, era yeah. age rather put it put their address on you know i don't think there's anything gay about mrs doubtfire or tootsie no. quite the opposite no. but uh you know i think there's still some nervousness uh, yeah. about about how niche which is the um, the Hollywood euphemism for I don't think we're buying that. Yeah. Um, anyway. Well, but, I know our um, bon vivants, our bon vivant listeners, you know, love cinema and love film, and documentary film is certainly one of those things that they love. You know, there's something interesting we've discovered about uh, ways to stream and ways to watch movies. Certainly, we all do it through our smart devices, but you know, you can actually access stuff like that with your library card. And uh, our local library here, Missouri River Regional Library, offers a program called Canopy, where you can download free videos, movies of all types and all sorts with a library card. So, Bon Vivants, if you're out there, check out your local library and see if they've got the Canopy program. And uh, you can access stuff like that, too. You know, the library is not just a, a building with old books on, in it anymore. It's got all sorts of resources. So, Thank you, Missouri River Regional Library, for sponsoring the program. And uh, maybe someday you can see drag or Mackie and documentary form. Or the disco one. The disco, disco. one. The oh, disco one, I think, so is popular. ready-made for, so for, a, for a Ken Burns. Uh, that would be, be something else. That would be agree. great. No, I, think it, I think it would really be fun. And, and let's hope that we sell the drag and, and that happens, and then we'll move on to this one and, and we'll do it. But, uh, and also, I have to tell you, when you mentioned the library, I worked in the library all four years at Northwestern on, on work study. I have such an affection for the, for libraries. Oh my God. It was just, I just loved them. And I just saw a great meme. It said that it's somebody's famous quote. And they said that reading teaches you how to be alone. And that is a great, great <laughs> thing. You know, it, 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 it sounds funny, but it's, it's, um, it's, it's actually very, uh, yeah, prophetic. Yeah. The, the disco book is a great way to segue into our final section of the show, Frank. And, uh, and we thank you for this topic because I don't think we would have, we might have come up with it eventually, but it certainly uh, forced our hand. Three top disco songs. We have done it to ourselves again. We have picked a category so broad. We could have done this by decade. We could have done this almost by year. Um, we could have done it by artist, certainly, but we didn't. And so we're going to be all over the place. Here's the drill. We'll go through it one at a time. You'll get to start, do your first one, and then we'll go around and we'll do them one at a time. We cheat. We do honorable mentions. And most of all, the Bonvig ones want to know why and what's the story behind your selection. And I'm really curious as to what yours are going to be since you're in the middle of this book. So. Yeah, I am too. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing, uh, what, what you're going to, what three you're going to pop out. And sure. I'm sure you've got some honorable mentions in there too. So Frank, kick it off, buddy. Take it away. Okay. I'm going to start with an obscure one first. There is a song called Dancer by Gino Socio, or Socho, I guess is how you'd say it in Italian. And, um, and that is one of my favorites. And it's, it's one of those songs. I tend to like disco songs that are very sort of mechanical sounding and, um, it has very few lyrics and I like it so much. And it's Dancer is the name of the song. Okay. We'll have to look that yeah. one up. I, right. I am not. Yeah, that's my obscure. No. I thought I'll pick one obscure no, and then no, two well known. That's all right. Okay. Yeah, I tried that's to, right. I tried to stay, uh, I'm, I'll go second and it's, it's an excellent point. I tried to stay away from the ones that you knew were going to be at the top of the list, you know, uh, and I, I actually, the honorable mention is the whole Saturday Night Fever album. 
But I also looked at bands because I'm a classic rock guy. Um, uh, bands that made the transition that had to make the transition to stay current. So they came through the rock era and then did some stuff that was disco and made it on the disco chart. So there, there are actually three that really stood out. Um, the long run and the Eagles is my favorite band. And I'm like, what? The Eagles didn't do any disco, but if you listen to the long run, it's a disco beat. And, uh, Miss You by the Rolling Stones is a disco song. And even though Mick said, well, it's not disco disco. It's just disco. That made me laugh so much. That was Mick's quote. It's like, it's not disco disco. Yeah. Well, yeah. thanks, Mick. And then the other one that nobody thinks about is another one bites the dust by Queen. Mm. Those are mm. all considered mm. disco songs. And I, after I, when I saw it, I was like, that's not. I'd, but, I'm having a hard time with those. Okay, three. well, just go but, listen to them. Okay, go All listen right. to them. All right. And, All right, and if you think about what was played in the clubs and stuff back then, you know, they those were songs. Well, that's true. But those those are so. Those are my. That's my first pick because it's it's transition. It's artists who transitioned and were able to survive the disco era. Okay. Well, they all did. Yeah, they did. They did. Well, and and let, can I just say. Don't forget, I was made for loving you by Kiss. That was on. Yes, yes. That was on Casablanca Records. So that that counts. There are others, certainly. Yeah. Well, my number three choice is just because, it's, first of all, I love the band, but they also they also moved on. Uh, this was in their ninth album called "I Am," and this is the great. And we're, oh, Frank, we're going to go see them actually in July. Earth, Wind, and Fire oh, yeah. Yeah. at the Ozark Amazing. Amphitheater, Boogie Wonderland, nineteen seventy nine. I, I just love these guys, and I hadn't had, and never have had a chance to see them. They were coming; they're going to be pretty close to us. And I said, I've got to go see them because, arguably, I think "Let's Groove Tonight" is one of the greatest songs ever written in the whole history of uh, of mankind. And September is right up there too. I just love Earth. They have an insane number of brilliant songs. They do. They yeah. had an insane amount of talent yeah. to go behind it. I mean, they were the real deal. Talk about oh, musicianship yeah. and performers and voices. Just ah, that horn section was to die oh, for. There's something about a horn section in there. I mean, it just it just kind of takes a, an okay band and just you just put a few horns with it and just blow your ears off and it just makes them better. I don't know. <laughs> I love a good horn section. Yeah, and that was so disco. I mean, that's such oh, a yeah. hallmark of disco. Music. That was, that was a very disco song. That was definitive yeah. disco, no doubt. All right, Frank, back to you. Okay, my number two choice, and I pick this because I think it's even better than the original version. I like Amy Stewart's Knock on Wood. Yeah. <laughs> I think Knock on Wood by Amy Stewart is a brilliant, brilliant version uh, of a, a song that had come out at least a decade, decade and a half earlier. People were like, wait a minute. Knock on Wood, that disco song was a cover, and it was like, yeah, it was a cover song. But it's also, like I said before, it's very machine-made sounding, which I really like. I love a gorgeous vocal over a cold mechanical sound. Honestly, if you can get like an 18-minute version of that song, you could clean your whole house. It's just, it's (laughs) it's that good, you know? It's that, it's really, it's very inspiring. Well, technologically, let's not discount what disco did for the the development and progression of what you might call industrialized. You've you've alluded to it a couple times, or the synthesized sound, you know, um, were really brought to the forefront during the disco era. 
I always like when people say, what's your favorite instrument? I say drum machine. Yeah. You yeah. know, I, <laughs> I was like, the love rhythm, that drum. Rhythm master. Yeah. I just say drum yeah. machine instead of trying to pronounce synthesize. <laughs> Uh, great segue to my second selections, and those are what I consider great disco dance songs. I mean, all disco is dance, but Last Dance by Donna Summer because it starts slow. And for a young man who's trying to dance with a young lady, that's always important, especially if you're not a great dancer anyway. And, and then it builds up and gets, you know, really grooving. And then... Uh, the hustle because it was an easy dance. Every, it was a line dance that everybody could learn. You didn't have to be a good, you didn't have to be a good dancer. And that was by Van McCoy and the Soul City Symphony. Gotta love that band name. Yeah. My, my number two one was just because the beginning of this song is just as absolutely in your face as it gets. It's the first couple, three bars. And uh, you mentioned her uh, earlier, Frank, and that would be Gloria Gaynor, I Will Survive. And it, it just it just kind of blows your ears back from the minute that you hear it. It was from 78. And uh, I always thought, you know, it's it's time to get going. A place in Columbia we used to go and and they'd belt that out about as loud as they possibly could. And you, you knew it was time to get out there, you know, or find somebody, which in my case never happened. But, you know, whatever. But I yeah. like that one. Yeah. I will survive. Gloria Gaynor. Some people call that the gay national anthem, and it's but it's not. It's you know it's um, it's actually the gay national anthem is uh, "You Make Me Feel Mighty Real" by Sylvester. No, but it's an empowerment song. Hold that thought about the gay national anthem because I can't believe you brought that up because I we we talked about that earlier before you came on. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So, but um, who's up? Frank's up. Frank's up. Frank's up. I'm up. Okay. Now this is, and I don't mean to be, uh, uh, you know, inflexible. This is the best disco song there is, and there's really no, you, there's no other. Um, it's I Feel Love by Donna Summer is the greatest disco song ever, 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 ever. No, and, um, and critics have said this, as, I'm not the first person to come up with this, but the thing that I loved was I was interviewing the guy who co-wrote the song. Pete uh, Belote is his name. He used a phrase. He said, the machine just keeps going and doesn't care about you and whether you live or die. And then Donna has this ethereal vocal over the top of it. But that dum 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 is just, it could play for the rest till the planet is, is a cinder. You know, it's like, it, it's basically it was kind of the, the gist of what we talked about and how it's like, yeah, that song could just keep going forever and ever and ever and it it was written you know all those years ago in the 70s yeah, it's very as the sound of the future and it still sounds like the future you know so uh well, donna, anyway that's why i say i still love would imagine donna, donna is at the is top the of the song. list on in any disco list she one list i looked at she was three of the top five spots and yeah it's like yeah, yeah. it is about right there's no no doubt that's why they call right. her the queen of disco but that's all right <laughs> although sylvester says he was the queen of disco so meant to mention yeah, well, him. He did. No, he says he was. My final, my subcategory is just classic disco. And we would be remiss if we did not have a mention of Casey and the Sunshine Band. And my favorite one of theirs, although they have quite a few, is do a little dance, make a little love, get down the night. Because during disco in college, when it was, that's, that was the goal of every young man. <laughs> 
<laughs> was it a song? It, yeah. Was it a song? It was a suggestion. Yeah, was or it something song, like it was that. A goal. Yeah. <laughs> it was a goal. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then the other one, of course, is uh, Car Wash by Rose Royce. Rose, First of all, you gotta, Royce. Love, you gotta love the name, the pun on the name of Rose Royce and Car Wash. Honestly, that movie is the soundtrack. It's it's one line and a soundtrack. It's, you know, yeah. it's got one really good line and then the soundtrack yeah. is great. Uh, it's such uh, a fun song, though. You know, work and work. Oh hell yeah! My oh, my number one was one that I, I kind of look, Frank. I've, we've done this before, and I like to also look at songs that have staying power. The ones that they went through the disco era, but then maybe somebody redid it and they had a new life. And I can't think of any that probably fit that bill better than. Dancing Queen by ABBA, who did theirs in uh, 76. And I mean, um, you know, that was their only number one hit, uh, number Billboard number one in the no. United States in the top 100. Yeah. Really? Yep. Dancing Queen was the number one. A bunch of them made, a couple of them made the top 10 and yeah, stuff. Yeah, that just shocks and me. And of course, huh? in Europe, and, you know, they were number one with, you know, they, they could fart the phone book and it wouldn't matter. You know, they'd be. They'd be number one, but anyway, it's it's one of those really get up and go kind of songs, you know. Great choice, yeah. Yeah, they would be worthy even if they did fart the phone book. It would be worthy of a number one because they're ABBA. Everybody that, knows that's it. why yep. I picked it. I it's become you know with the movie and everything. It's it's uh, and the show. It's it's become universal again, and it's it's really great music. It's really really good it music. Is. Next time I buy an opening day movie ticket. Will be if they make a ABBA, a Mamma Mia three. Until they do it, I'm not going. Okay, I just know what I loved about the Mamma Mia movies. I I love them. They look like they're having fun on that set. I just want to say. My God, I would have loved to have been on that set. I want to go because there. Because they look like they're having yeah. so much fun. Yeah, it yeah. does. It does. Absolutely. True. And you need a little bit of a, like when Cher puts that one foot down out of the helicopter, <laughs> a gay guy needs a point pad at that moment. You really do. You, you, it's it's very hard as you get older to not squirt a little. You know, I mean, it's fair to tell. Oh, my god! Because it's just that foot comes down uh, out of that uh, helicopter. Uh, like, well, that's it. Now. I have to go to So I've got so one more, though. This is... This is sort of my grand finale. This is my my yeah, yeah. total Frank suck up song. This is the one, and it's I don't even think it's really a disco oh. song because it was in '82 that it came out. I put it in my oh, my Hall of Fame as far as the some one of the best party songs of all time, and that is. It's Raining Men by the Weather Girls. I love that song. I don't know if it belongs as That's a national definitely as a, a disco gay song. Nation. I think it is. Well, Frank, this has been a blast. This we cannot thank you enough so for taking fun. time to do this. And uh, we will get all of your links and connections and all that kind of stuff and post them on the website when the uh, uh, episode goes live. Thank you again for your time. What a what a joy. All our best. And, and uh, let, let us know when that disco book comes yes, out. Definitely. We, will, uh, we yep. will do everything we, we can to get it out. It. There, yep. yep, we certainly will. Oh, thank you. I, I, it was a real honor talking to both of you. I love getting to chat about all the fun things I've, I've gotten to do. I tell you, 
It hasn't been boring. Thank heaven for that. I mean, I've, I have no complaints. You know, it's I've had a very, very fun life, and I hope other people remember to prioritize fun in their lives because, uh, you know, in doing this disco research, I came across someone, and they said, they said, how is Deanne von Furstenberg enjoying, it's an interview from the late 70s, how is Deanne von Furstenberg enjoying Colorado? And he said, oh, she loves it. She has fun anywhere she goes. I want to be her. That's what I want to she That's has great. fun there wherever go. she goes. That's, That's go. my goal That's in good life. Advice. Yeah. So. All right. Frank, thanks so much. Bon vivants. Thank you for joining us. And, thanks, uh, Frank. Till next time. All right, Keith. Cheers. Cheers. We Like That Too is produced as a labor of love for the enjoyment of Bon Vivants everywhere. To get information about our bottles and links to our guests, go to our website, welikethatpodcast.com. Tune in to new episodes by subscribing on Apple, Spotify, and other popular streaming apps. Please remember to rate, review, and share. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at We Like That Podcast. So everybody, hey, remember the numbers. One bottle, two good friends, and three top picks because we, we like, like that, that too. We like that too. We like that too. We like that too We like that too